0: This program is brought to you by the partners of Arute Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support Arute Awakening International today. The Israelites followed a road to get to Mount Sinai and today that road is paved with asphalt. While Saudi Arabia builds the Neom megacity, dangerously close to Mount Sinai, Joel Richardson explains that the Bible also speaks of another road that will open up for the king of kings to lead his people to Zion. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom to our fans. Welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. Tonight's episode is going to open your eyes to an end time concept you may have not considered. Tonight's episode of What the Bible Really Says with Joel Richardson presents an interesting look at the greater exodus in the book of the Revelation, but that it may actually point to crossing the desert again, this time with Yeshua leading us the Desert Highway is tonight's episode. Also, the renewed moon was verified earlier this week and that means we are now into the eighth month on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected Biblical Hebrew calendar, there it is right there. All right, now please welcome my co-host, the CEO of A Rood Awakening International, Ted Clayton. Well, thank you, Scott, and welcome
1: everyone to Shabbat Night Live. Once again, Joel Richardson's gonna knock it out of the park with a great teaching tonight. So stay with us for that, it's gonna be fantastic.
0: It is fantastic. Now, speaking of fantastic, something that a lot of people have been doing for us uh, since we launched it out there, we weren't sure how this was gonna fly, but a lot of people are contributing to this. Mm -hmm. So when we send a uh, Spanish version of the Chronological Gospels overseas, it can be really pricey, Never mind what kind of uh, duties or tariffs they owe when they get it, but just to ship it from here is often 30 bucks that's as much as the bible itself yeah that's right so what we want to do is help those folks with that shipping cost because you know $30 to us is meh it's maybe a lunch out with a friend but that's there right. it could be a lot more i mean that could be a that's week's right. wages or you know depending on depending on where you live so we are asking you to donate the shipping cost to send this bible to these people so now they'll they'll go to the due diligence of buying the bible but if you will help them get it there. That will be certainly appreciated. And that's something, Ted, we're asking people to donate $30 toward. That's right, uh, Scott. You know,
1: ladies and gentlemen, this is a very important time in world history. You know, with all the stuff that's happening, with the things that's happening in China, the things in Russia with the war, uh, the, it's, just, it's just an upheaval time in our history. And ladies and gentlemen, the people of the South American countries are hungry for the Word, and this is just a great way to get the Word of God to them and allow them to have hope. And like Scott said just a moment ago, it could cost as much as $30 to send this book to them, and they're eager, they're wanting it. Matter of fact, the first run of the Spanish edition, Scott, of the Chronological Gospels sold out within 30 days. That's how hungry they are for the word. And especially Michael's word of truth. You know, ladies and gentlemen, South America is a world that is just riddled with all sorts of things. Now, I won't call it necessarily like voodoo, but you know, all of these. A lot of mixing. A lot of, lot of weirdness going on in South America. But there is light at the end of the tunnel, ladies and gentlemen, and that light is the truth that Michael Rood has in the the Chronological Gospels, the Spanish edition. So ladies and gentlemen, we thank you for doing that. All you have to do, Scott, tell us, what do you have to do to go and
0: make this donation for people to get the Chronological well, It's just gospel. like buying anything else on our store. So you go in there, it looks like a, a product, like yes. anything else would be like a product. Right, right. right. But uh, you go to rootawakening.tv slash ship TCG. Ship As in the Chronological yeah, Gospel. Right, right. And if you go there, uh, it'll take you right to where you need to be, and you basically buy the shipping cost for these yeah. people. It's just $30, and you buy it, and it's done. You just don't That's get right. anything shipped to you. But know that we are putting that into a special fund to allow uh, the shipping right. for this. And that's the only way we could you know, earmark it as such is to sort of create like a product out of it. And, and that's an easy way to keep track of it.
1: And, and ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you that this is a special time with this. So go now and make that donation for our Spanish speaking friends in Latin America to get this very, very special book. And speaking of special mm-hmm. books, Scott, Oh, yes. We have something that's really gonna be special for our English-speaking people.
0: Yeah, well, you might notice that right now the Chronological Gospels in English is completely sold out. out. And that oh. includes the regular edition, the larger print edition, and any other bundles or you know collections right. that this comes with, they're all gone. Right. Why, why aren't we, what's going on? A second edition is coming. That's right. second edition is coming. We can't tell you when it's gonna get here yet because it's coming. Yeah. (laughs) No, just be patient. We'll tell you soon
1: when it's coming. Yeah, it should be here very soon, ladies and gentlemen. We're waiting for the shipments to get here, but this is gonna be something. It's got added material Mm -hmm. that Michael has worked on and worked on literally for the past couple of years. And ladies and gentlemen, you're gonna love
0: this second edition of the Chronological Gospels. You're gonna wanna get this. This is gonna be really, one of the best things about the Chronological Gospels is Michael's uh, annotations. Yeah, and so right. some of that has been refined. There's more of that. Yeah. It's also easier to find stuff. There's a whole new index uh, in right. the front end about where to find the Bible verses associated with every single event that's in right. Yeshua's life. We didn't have that before. That's brand new. So there's all kinds of neat little additions to it that are gonna help you uh, you know, study the the Gospels and the Book of Acts and the Book of Revelation even better. That's right, and this is gonna be
1: something special. So, ladies and gentlemen, stand by. It's coming, it's gonna be here very soon, so we just look forward to it so very, very much. Now, Scott, this month's love
0: gift mm-hmm. is also very special. Tell yes. us a little bit about it. So this is Joel. So we are uh, hearing the uh, you know second episode of Joel's teaching tonight, yes, and right. he's also got the love gift. So it's the Joel Richardson month. Is that's what's it. happening here at Awakening, and it's the pre-trib trap. Mm. You know, pre-tribulation rapture. This is where you know. Uh, Uh, who was it, Uh, in the 80s, we had uh, the Left Behind series and all that, that really solidified in a lot of people's minds that, oh, the pre-tribulation rapture is a thing. It wasn't a thing before 200 years ago. That's right. Yeshua didn't teach it, apostles didn't teach it. You know why, because it ain't in the Bible, that's why. That's why. And so Joel Richardson is saying, where do we get this from? Why? Why is this taught? And here's the truth of it. It's not true. And here's where you can find out why that's not true. And also in here, he actually goes after some things that we uh, we in the Torah observance circles as well, Ted, are, you know, we're in error too because right. we look at these extra biblical books like Enoch and uh, Jasher and all these kind of things. Yes, they're good for context. Yes, they're good for history. Don't consider them scripture. Don't right. get some different ideas in here that are not in the Bible. And Joel is very uh, staunch about warning us about that too, that hey, our Christian friends that are still in the church, they're not the only ones that are maybe having their blinders up, we do too. So, good teaching.
1: Well, Scott, listen, I know there's also some very important testimonies oh, out yeah. there that have been coming through in our last minute
0: or so. Yep, we have some time. Yep. Talk to us about this uh, testimony we have. So this one, this person wanted to remain anonymous, but we decided anonymous wasn't good enough. That's right. This is in this month's newsletter, and it's uh, we, we titled it A Life That Was Changed. That was a, that was a good way of putting it from sure. Donna, your wife. So, yeah, you know, right. Let's put that, because this person's life was changed. That's right. And they say, uh, Michael, I have spent my entire adult life in search of spiritual truth. It has only been recently when I realized so much of my spiritual life was on my own terms. I came back into right relationship with Yahovah in the last couple of years. When I discovered your teachings, I, like many others, detected a quality missing in, uh, in so many others. You have helped me immensely in revealing so many mysteries, interpretations, misinterpretations, and retroactively inserted scriptural passages. Your ultra high standards to every aspect of presentation, your superior speaking style, all gifts from the grace of you know who, I just feel compelled to convey what a uh, quench your work has been to my thirst for truth. Thank you, brother, I'll see you when the smoke clears. Out. Oh, wow. that's great.
1: That's great, and you help do that, ladies and gentlemen. You, with your sacrificial giving to A Root Awakening International, you
0: make testimonies like this possible. Indeed, okay. Well, we're gonna give you a couple minutes to do that in just a few minutes here, uh, but while Saudi Arabia builds the neon megacity dangerously close to Mount Sinai, Joel Richardson explains that the Bible also speaks of another road that will open up for the King of Kings to lead his people, us, to Zion. That's coming up, and the kiddish with Michael is next. The pre-tribulation rapture was developed from mistaken ideas less than 200 years ago. Yeshua did not teach it. The apostles did not teach it. So where does this modern doctrine come from?
2: People watching this right now, people alive, our brothers and sisters will face the great trial, the great test of our faith. And you have all of these preachers who are literally lying, saying, oh, don't worry.
0: In this month's exclusive Love Gift teaching, Joel Richardson reminds both church-going Christians and Torah-observant believers that trusting in man instead of Yehovah's Word is a slippery slope, especially when it comes to lost books not found in our Bible. The Pre-Trib Trap with Joel Richardson is not available anywhere online, but we'll give it to you as our thanks for supporting A Root Awakening International. When you donate $50 to this ministry in October, we'll send you The Pre-Trib Trap with Joel Richardson on DVD or Blu-ray. Donate $100 and we'll send you The Pre-Trib Trap, plus a custom-made slate wall hanging featuring a laser etching of the Hebrew name of God from the Aleppo Codex. Donate $300 and we'll send you the pre-trib trap, the custom-made slate wall hanging, and a framed replica of the Isaiah scroll fragment dated 125 BCE, bearing Isaiah 60 verse one. These gifts are a limited time offer from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Thank you, your donations ensure that important teachings like the pre-trib trap keep coming from A Root Awakening International. Use your cell phone to scan the QR code on your screen to donate now and receive these limited time gifts or call 888-766-3610 or get your gifts
3: online with a donation at monthlylovegift.com. On the morning that the Passover lambs were selected, there were two loaves that were put on the wall of the temple. When the first one was removed, after that, no more leavened bread was eaten. When the second loaf was removed, then all of the leavened bread in the land of Israel was then burned. Because the feast of unleavened bread was going to commence at sunset that evening. The night before, Yeshua took Artos, he took leavened bread and he blessed the Most High in the presence of his disciples and he interpreted the Kadosh Mikra, the holy rehearsal that Melchizedek put in place with Avraham. Yeshua said the prayer of the Melchizedek. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he said, this represents my body, which is now broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Then Yeshua took the cup, and he said, Baruch atah, Yehovah, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, bere Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, the king of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, and then he said, you take my cup, divide it among yourselves, I will not drink a sip of the fruit of the vine till I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So as often as we do this now, we rehearse not only his death, but we rehearse that we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and at the marriage supper of the Lamb, he will take his cup and say, Lahaim, to life everlasting. And until then, shabbat shalom.
0: You know, here at A Rood Awakening, we have some pretty cool stuff. If you've ever come here for a visit, especially if no one else is around and I'm showing you around, I'm going to show you this glass case that we have. And there's some artifacts in there from different parts of the world uh, that relate to the stories of the Bible. And one of the newest things we have in there is a piece of rock from Mount Sinai. And Michael Rood's in the studio today. I won't tell him this, but sometimes I lift up the glass and I let people hold the rock. So <laughs> and people just get a real thrill out of holding a piece of Mount Sinai in their hand. And then, of course, we put the glass case over top again. But anyway, there's some really neat stuff here. And there's something I hadn't heard before, uh, but I did hear it from Joel Richardson. Last time he was here was about this, this, uh, this depiction of archers in front of Mount Sinai on a rock. What was that all about? And so we decided, well, the only way to really give this some credence is to have Joel Richardson back. So Joel, welcome back to Shabbat Night Live. And last time you were here. Yeah, so you described these, these artifacts that I'd never heard of before. I don't know if anybody else picked up on them, but I wonder if you could tell the story of what they are, what they're all about, and, uh, and what it tells us about the, what happened at Mount Sinai.
2: So this is interesting. Um, yeah, and when I was here, I, I believe that I shared the pictures of the archers, um, but there's actually another painting that I didn't talk about, um, and I, I've kind of sat on it for the past few years and I recently um, shared some pictures of that um, on uh, my YouTube channel, but we'll talk about that. So the first time that I went to Mount Sinai, um, there was six of us total, and we, we were walking up to the mountain. We were approaching the mountain. We got separated you know, a couple hundred yards because it was hours of walking. And just as I got to the base of the mountain, I came up to what looked like—I'll say it's almost like a cave-like structure, but it's not really a cave. The rocks, the formations there have some almost cave-like uh, elements. You know, maybe two people could sleep in this and get cover from the weather. But I saw this painting, you know, and it looked like what I would imagine a caveman painting—you know, just very primitive. And I looked at it, you know, just got out my phone, started taking pictures. Well, it's a—it's a mural of probably about a dozen archers. Um, you can share the, the pictures here with the audience. And so I immediately, I took the pictures and I texted um, Penny Caldwell, friend of the program. And I said, hey, check this out, what I just found. And I assumed others had found it before, but it's such a huge area. There's so many things around this rock or here, around this turn. And, um, and Penny goes, where is that? I've never seen that. And I thought, well, if Penny's never seen it, you know, Jim and Penny Caldwell, like they have been studying this mountain for decades. And I said, yeah, you know, and so she goes, that's amazing. Well, then I texted my wife and uh, my wife Amy, she goes, that's exactly like in the book of Exodus. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? She goes, look at the end of Exodus 19, right off the top of her head. And um, and I was like. <laughs> yeah, Bible teacher. Come yeah, <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about, woman? I'm the Bible teacher here. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I do not suffer a woman, Uh, remain silent in the church. So anyway, she tells me, look at the end of Exodus 19. And I look it up and I'm like, you're kidding me. And so the Lord says to Moses, he says, go and consecrate the people, tell them on the third day I'm coming down on the mountain, but tell them neither man nor beast should approach even the foot of the mountain. He says, if they touch the mountain, they are to be killed, either stoned to death or shot through with arrows, is the implication. So I'm like, here it is, shot with arrows. If they approach the mountain, right at the base of the mountain, literally at the base of the mountain, is this painting of archers. And I went, yep, that's exactly what the Bible says. So it's kind of the modern equivalent of these cute little signs that say, this property protected by Smith and Wesson. Um, At least most Americans will be familiar with that. And this was sort of the ancient version of that. And it may even have been possible that there were archers positioned there, that's possible. And I looked and I thought, you know, it's actually not unreasonable to think there's a possibility that Moses himself could have painted this. You know, I mean, it's it's absolutely possible. Now, these particular paintings, the reason that they're preserved thousands of years is because they're on the underside of the rock. If they're on the top of the rock, the paintings get worn off. So I imagine there was a lot, because you do see a lot of these paintings. Most of what you see around Mount Sinai are the petroglyphs. They're different. They're actually carved or chipped into the rock, beating through this sort of dark, uh, what's called desert varnish. It's this dark microbial um, darkening that happens. They chip through it and they make these very primitive drawings. So those last forever, even in the weather. But if Mm. if you get some of the paintings that are on the underside of the rocks, they'll stay. So the thing that I didn't share at the time was about 20 yards from the archers, there was a friend of mine's son found another mural. And we took pictures of it, and I just didn't really know what to make of it at the time, and so I've sat on it, but the more that I've thought about it, looked at it, and studied the scriptures, the more that I said, no, I think this is also a profound biblical story that's being told here. And so again, we'll put the pictures up for everyone to see. And let me just say this, they're, you know, again, they're they're primitive. They're pretty simple. Um, I also will give you some versions of the pictures that have been filtered through this app. It's actually a neat app that's used for rock climbers so that they don't touch if they come upon a petroglyph. It's a filter that helps you to see things that the human eye can't necessarily see. So it really helps you to see this image quite well. But essentially what you have is you have this whole cluster of people down below. There's maybe a dozen, 14 or so of them, these people. And then up above them are, there's several giants. I mean, they're, you know, four times, three or four times bigger than the smaller people. And you can see some of the little people that are up there with them. And it appears to be a battle. There's even in the middle of it, you kind of see a little bow and arrow. So it seems to be a battle between giants, and normal sized people. So you go, well, what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, again, when you read the story of the Exodus, when Israel came to Rephidim, that's where the split rock was, it was there at Rephidim that they, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites, and there was a battle at Rephidim. So you go, okay, so Israel fought all kinds of people. What does that have to do with giants? Well, when you actually study the scriptures, in exodus uh, i'm sorry in numbers 13 as they were going to spy out the land caleb and his crew they they came back and they said we have seen the people in the land we saw the nephilim we saw the children of anak Um, and there are the amalekites and the jebusites and he lists the different people and he says they are very tall exceedingly tall people. They are the, the Nephilim, they are the giants. So the point is this, and you can kind of tease it out by going through some of the, um, the, the familial lineage of the Amalekites. They're sort of descendants of some peoples from the kingdom of Edom and so forth. But the point is the Amalekites had Nephilim blood. Michael, Dr. Michael Heiser has done some great work um, explaining a, so many of the peoples in the land were, were descendants of the Nephilim. And the Israelites, um, of course, defeated them. And you gotta love Caleb's spirit. He's like, they're grasshoppers. Like, he's like, give me a break. Like, you guys are living in fear. We're gonna go in and we're gonna take them. I don't care if they're giants. The land is ours, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, everyone's like, but they're too big. Caleb's like, forget about it. Let's go do this thing. So. The point is the Amalekites were giants, and then here we have this picture, and again, it's not conclusive, I wanna be clear, but it is very suggestive because it's hard. You can find, for example, in the um, museum there in Jerusalem, you can find massive arrow metal spearheads that are like this big. You go, no normal-sized person could, and then you'll get someone to say, well, that was probably just created as like a, an award to some hero, it wasn't used in battle, he just hung it on his wall. Like they they make different, you have evidence of giants, okay? But you don't have a lot of paintings from this era. You don't have a lot of artistic depictions, right? Because we're dealing with a few thousand years, 3,000 years ago. But here you have an example of a painting at the base of Mount Sinai, which is obviously connected to the Exodus narrative, which seems to again portray a battle between smaller people and giants. And then further, if you look at them, the giants all have, they all have sort of this big square rectangular um, breastplate or something, which seems to be a shield, hmm. you know, which again would indicate that this is a battle because there's a few of them, when you look at it, that are don't have this big square in front of them. They're giants, they're big tall people, but they're stick figures. But the ones that are actually in battle seem to have these, these uh, shields in front of them so you know again the skeptics will probably disregard it but I think it's a it's a pretty powerful faith boosting uh, neat little discovery that my uh, my friend's son found so um, yeah I, I shared it shared it with the body and I think a lot of people have been encouraged
0: and you know you think about it so sometimes we assume in the West oh everything that needs to be found has been found but we have to think about if there were truly millions of Israelites out there and they were all making their their mark on rocks to sort of record what was happening here, who knows how much is still out there by how how many artists did, were depicting this of, of the Israelites?
2: Yeah, there's so much yet undiscovered. Again, this is Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. Um, on my most recent tour, I actually went with renowned Israeli Biblical archeologist, Eli Shukran. So this is the fir- he's the first real, legitimate, credentialed Biblical archeologist that, that went. And I've been very careful because I don't want to speak on his behalf. Um, and I really just let him look at everything. I didn't try to impose my particular views. And um, he was, um, as an archeologist, I mean, he was drooling. You know, he's like, <laughs> oh, I would love to excavate this. I would love to excavate this. And one of the things that, I don't know if I mentioned this, but being who I am, going to Saudi Arabia, I've had, over the past four years, I have had so many, and I hate to say this, random grave robbers reach out to me and say, hey, I have this, I have that, would you like to buy it? And sometimes I'll ask, what do you? how much do you want? Just curiously, obviously, I wouldn't touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole, because it's stolen. Like the, these are folks, these are <laughs> amateur archeologists. They know where the stuff is. They go digging with, and, and, um, and some of the stuff clearly, clearly Jewish artifacts with menorahs, with, now some of it might be from the Bar Kokhba era, you know, the first century, some of it's much older. Some of the stuff is stunning. Um, the pictures, I can't share it again because you don't know if it's a forgery. And again, it's illegal. I would love for the Saudi government to find these folks and go after them and get, recover these artifacts. But there's no question that in the years ahead, when the Saudi government allows legitimate archaeological digs, the things that will be discovered around Jebel Laws are incredible. If, if a dummy like me, you know, just walking up with my iPhone, can make a discovery like that, Uh, I have no question that once we start approaching this more scientifically, it's going to be, I genuinely believe Jebel Allah's will, in in years ahead, it will come to be viewed as the single greatest biblical archeological find in history. I mean, this is Mount Sinai. This is the foundation. This is the golden chalice. All of the archeologists, they want to be, you know, besides finding the Ark of the Covenant, like Mount Sinai is it. And for what it's worth, what's interesting is in the the whole world of biblical archeology, span and again, most of these guys are, I mean, a lot of them are not even believers, right? But what they'll say is they'll say, we have clear evidence that the Bible is at least historically true back until the time of David. Hmm. They'll say, but really, we don't have anything before that. Now, of course, just recently up there at um, Mount Gerizim, they found this little, small little piece of lead and on the lead it had some of the curses of the covenant. Of the curse the tablet. Yeah, the curse tablet. Mm-hmm. Still a little bit controversial, but it's pretty clear. It's got Jehovah's it's got name, some of the curses on it and so forth, that this is now saying, okay, well, now we have that evidence back to the time of Joshua. That just knocked it back a few hundred years from David. Pretty fascinating. But the one era that all of them will say we have no clear evidence of is the Exodus. Hmm. is Mount Sinai. Now, of course, it's because they've been looking in the wrong place. They've been looking in all the wrong places. Now that Saudi Arabia is open, by the grace of God, the Saudi royal family will be smart enough to preserve and protect this. I believe they will do that. Unfortunately, they are building a highway um, right through that area, which is- I was gonna ask you about that. So what, is the, what do you see
0: as the future of, or the, the peril of Mount Sinai with the city of Neom clearly being built right now and you say a highway is going right near there do you think they'll they'll protect this as a national park or something or
2: i believe so um i believe so unfortunately so they're putting in there there will be pavement now in between the golden calf altar and the mountain itself and that road may even be paved right now last time i was there massive construction equipment there's whole little cities of workers and so forth and they're building this other ski resort nearby. Um, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Trojena, And it's, they're gonna host the like Asian winter games there in a few years. So there's, ma- they're, I mean, think about this, in Saudi Arabia, they're building a ski resort pretty close to Mount Sinai. So that's gonna bring a lot of traffic. It's gonna bring a lot of visitors, because this used to be out in the middle of nowhere. Now they're gonna develop this. Now, let me just say this, the city of Neom, the line, it, the line is this city that will be, it's it's this single building that's 200 plus kilometers long. It's really quite fascinating. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of different building. It's very far. Like, this is a huge area. It's quite far from the mountain. It's not like you're going to, you know, be on the mountain and just look and see all this, like, development. But my hope, and for everyone, like, what I've been trying to communicate to the Saudi royal family is that this is... Mount Sinai is the greatest source of revenue imaginable. They will be competing with Israel overnight for Christian tourists, Muslim tour. This is something, believe it or not, Jews, Muslims, Christians, people you know from all, all three of the faiths can go there. It, it's not contradictory to the Quran, that this is where Moses lived, that Jethro, they call him Shu'aib, this was the, the Valley of Tor is called in the Quran. This is, it's not contradictory to their story. So they can benefit people, again, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, and they can make good money doing it. So hopefully they preserve it and protect it, and it doesn't become a place where you got all these people selling trinkets at the base of the mountain, like when you go to Petra or something like that. That would be a tragedy if something so sacred was not truly preserved. We hope that they'll preserve it. This highway going through there is really a massive disappointment, um, but time will tell.
0: At least they didn't build it through the Golden Calf Altar.
2: Yeah, exactly. Or
0: something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. As uh, Keith Johnson noted when he went last time, uh, the fence around there because of a flood had actually been it, part of it had collapsed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, they're not even really out there that, that often to keep, keep track of what's going on out there, even yeah. weather-wise.
2: Yeah, everyone's like, I thought the mountain's surrounded by a fence. How'd you get there? And I was like, well, the fence is tipped over. <laughs> <laughs> just walked over it, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, and it, it's, it's like, I liken
0: this to a city where, you know, if there were millions of Israelites, or however many were there were, you know, it's, it's like a city that's been abandoned. And then a few people go in and say, oh, I found this artifact, I found that artifact, but there were a million people there. There's going to be a ton of stuff to find and show to the world that this really does prove the Israelites and then prove Exodus and then prove the validity of the entire Bible. Yeah. And now that, that is going to be something that the world's gonna have to reckon with. Yeah, the Exodus did happen.
2: Yeah, and, th- and this is the thing, I again, I'm convinced, you know, when Jesus says the rocks will cry out, like if you remain silent, the rocks <laughs> will cry out. The overwhelming statement throughout the Exodus, Passover, remember, do not forget, do not forget, remember, remember, remember. But really, the whole world's forgotten. I mean, yes, you know, the the Jews celebrate Passover. It's the longest, most continuously celebrated holiday in human history. They preserve it, but again, even, you know, you think reformed Jews, they don't really connect with the story. It's more of a cultural issue. But the Lord is about to remind the whole world, remember this, remember this. Because again, from a New Testament perspective, the return of Yeshua, all of the imagery of the return of Yeshua is the greater theophany. God came down on the mountain at Mount Sinai. That was intended, the God who wrote this book intended that event to be understood as a faint prophetic foreshadow, a dress rehearsal for the far greater theophany that is to come when he breaks forth from heaven in thick storm clouds, in blazing fire, with armies of angels, with the blasting of trumpets, with a mighty earthquake. All of those things were present at Mount Sinai. He descended on the mountain in fire and consuming fire. He's coming back in blazing fire. And so because the Lord is preparing the world for the return of Yeshua, He's going to use this historical event, he's gonna remind the world in order, I'm convinced, to try to wake people up and prepare for what's coming.
0: Let's talk more about that. Uh, Coming back in just a second, thank you for bringing Joel here. I'm thanking you because your donations make this show happen. Thank you very much. We're gonna give you a couple minutes to maybe do some more of that. And again, we thank you for doing that because that allows other people in the future to see this. So thank you from them. Hey, thank you for your support of Shabbat Night Live. Before the break, we were talking about the Atmosphere around Mount Sinai when God gave his commandments, the thunder, the lightnings, the clouds, everything. And ain't nothing compared to when Yeshua comes back. So Joel, we were talking during the break here about how um, that that is a foreshadowing of revelation. And I tell people all the time, if they wanna understand revelation, even just a little bit like Michael Rood does, who by the way is in the back of the studio today watching us do this, um, you know read Exodus first and skip everything else and go right to Revelation and you'll start to see all kinds of correlation. Is that how you see it too?
2: Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, just on the surface, right, you can point to the plagues and the judgments of the seals, the trumpets and the bowls in the book of Revelation are clearly patterned after the plagues of the Exodus. And I mean, so much of the language in the book of Revelation is drawn from the Exodus. And then you see things like, um, when all is said and done, they sing what? the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, and you see a lot of those like just surfacey correlations. But what a lot of people don't realize is the depth to which the return of Jesus is patterned after the Exodus. So I I wrote a whole book on this called Sinai to Zion. But essentially, if you survey the various passages throughout the Old Testament, you don't even have to look at the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, you have a handful of passages, Deuteronomy 33, Judges 5, Psalm 68, Habakkuk 3, Isaiah 63. They describe God, Yehovah, as marching. He's in anthropomorphic form. So he's in the form of a man. He has hands and feet. He's marching in front of his people. And he is destroying and slaughtering his enemies. Now, theologians will look at these passages and they go, oh, this is, It's the Exodus, but it's using like flamboyant, overly exaggerated, poetic language. Like We know that the Lord didn't literally march in front of Israel during the Exodus and this type of thing. You go, well, that's one way of viewing it is just the Bible's just exaggerating and using over-the-top language. Or you can view it the way all of the New Testament writers view it, which is just to say, no, these passages are actually prophecies. They use Exodus language. It says, It actually says, the Lord comes from Sinai. He's portrayed as marching from the south, from the region of Sinai, up through Paran and Basra and Edom, and he's soaked in blood. It says, the blood of his enemies. Now that language, by the way, of the divine warrior soaked in the blood of his enemies, where does that pop up again? It's not just in Isaiah 63, it pops up in, Revelation, Mm. where he is treading the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. And so again, that's just another example where Revelation is drawing from these passages. Yes, they use Exodus imagery, they use Exodus language, but it's not talking, it's not looking back at the Exodus, it's looking forward to the return of Yeshua, the return of the divine warrior. So
0: we're mentioning real places on a real map, And so I guess one would have to almost look at that just, you know, just, just obviously, and say, well, well, why would these places be named, literal places be named, if this was not to be a literal event? It's not just a figurative thing. I mean, when people always they always ask me, well, is the Bible literal or figurative? It's both. It's always both. So is is that what you see this
2: as too? That yes, it could have some figurative meaning, but it's going to be literal too. Yeah. Look, you've got passages. Let's say, okay, so understanding this, that when Yeshua returns, and I'll just say this and I'll throw this out and people will be like, wait, what? He will arguably retrace the steps of the Exodus. There's even a good case that could be made that he will return to Egypt and make his way all the way from Egypt and split the Red Sea yet again. Hmm. There's actually quite a few passages that talk about this in Habakkuk 3 and and, um, Ezekiel, him splitting the Red Sea again Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist. At times he's referred to as Leviathan or Rahab, his body slain in the desert, laid out in the desert and this type of thing. But Yeshua will retrace the path of the Exodus, make his way up from the region of Sinai, up modern day Saudi Arabia, up through Jordan, Basra, Petra, etc., And he will be setting prisoners free. So you go, is it figurative, is it literal? when you get to passages like Isaiah 35 where it talks about this highway in the desert, this is all part of the same story. Now you can read it and be like, this is a wonderful, beautiful, poetic prophecy. No, it's literal. So the land of Israel, I'll just put it this way, from the north to the south, right? Like up in the, the, the Golan down to the Negev in the south, radically different biospheres, you know, desert to lush. But when you go from the Mediterranean You go down, up to Jerusalem, up, down to the Jordan River Valley, and then back up to, it's up, down, up, down. Like So when you go east, west, Israel is basically up, down, up, down, up, down. When you look at Isaiah 35, it says the mountains will be lowered and the valleys will be lifted up. You go, so is that literal or figurative? You go, I don't know, but it's using poetic figurative language, but it's describing a very literal event. It's describing the highway It's as though the earth itself is rolling out the red carpet for the king as he makes his way during this holy procession with all of the saints that he has set prisoners free. Again, from prison camps, Israelites who have fled, many of them fled, many of them were taken captive. He sets them free. And as he makes his way up from, you know, the area of Jordan around the north of the Dead Sea um, into Jerusalem. It's like the or, the earth itself is changing and rising and lowering to meet him. And so this is one. And it says, you know, like the desert will rejoice and be glad. You go, well, is that figurative or literal? I don't know. Can dirt rejoice? But it's, it's, it's using the language of reversal. That which is dry and barren and cracked and desolate is blossoming and, and becomes springs of life. It's singing, it's rejoicing. And so again, is it, is it figurative? Is it literal? Here's what I know, is that in this age, all of us, even in Yeshua, we struggle with anxiety, with sadness. The day is coming it says, when gladness and joy will overtake us, everlasting joy will be our, will crown us. And that's the language. The day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the return of Yeshua, is the great reversal. From that day forward, there's no more anxiety. Say to those with anxious hearts, be encouraged. Your king is coming. Vengeance is coming. Justice is coming. So... It's it's both as you said. It's figurative, it's literal. It's using poetic language to speak of beautiful, glorious, literal future realities that you and I will see with our eyeballs in their glorified resurrected eye sockets, you know what I'm saying? We will have bodies, we will see that day, it's as real as mm-hmm. this moment is real.
0: You know, I can see that because, you know, I have this Bible at home that uh, Keith Johnson has had me bring onto the stage a couple of times. It's called the Jerusalem Bible. It's this old Catholic Bible uh, that was originally uh, translated from French to English. So it's got a really different take on some, mm-hmm. some of the passages and it, it has the Apocrypha in it. That's why I wanted it. I got it for five bucks at this used, book, used bookstore. So it's got the Apocrypha in it, and it has Ecclesiasticus and Tobit and all these other books in it. But anyway, what's interesting about it is that the way the Exodus is lined out in that Bible, I started to notice something, that all of the plagues that happened uh, in the Exodus, Yeshua, with his miracles, reversed each one of them. As you say, it's a reversal. Uh. So... And as we know in Hebraic thought, you know, it's, something is not a, not fulfilled once; it's fulfilled over and over again in different ways. Yeah. So this was sort of the intermediate, if you will, fulfillment of the reversal of the curses of Exodus or the uh, the disasters in Exodus, the plagues. But the greater version is coming even late, uh, later with with Revelation. I love that. Yeah. And could it be that, that, that? Let me ask you this. So I know that you know when we talk of. Yeshua coming back and bringing his people to Israel. So Israel's borders today are not what the Bible describes as right. Israel, they're much, much larger. Sure. And uh, the Great Rift Valley goes up there as well. There's a lot of uh, geologic activity there with earthquakes and things like that. Could that maybe be part of it, The mountains coming
2: down, the valleys coming
0: up, all this type,
2: type of talk? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously tremendous topographical changes after he returns, Jerusalem itself is going to be completely transformed. I mean, it says there in Zechariah, right, the Mount of Olives will be split east-west. Half of it goes north, half goes south, and then they flee by this sort of valley that opens up. And, um, and of course, the thing that I always love is then it describes this river of life, this mm-hmm. river flowing out from Jerusalem, and it goes down and actually makes the Dead Sea fresh. That's gonna take a lot of rinsing. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty deep body yeah. of water there and it says wherever the river flows there will be it will teem with life with fish. It'll fish just like the Mediterranean yeah And so Not
0: figurative fish, literal fish.
2: yeah, literal fish. But yeah. see again, that's an example of there's this poetic beauty in that in that this river of life flows from Jerusalem, but it's also literal mm-hmm. And that's what's neat about the Lord is that he actually has a great he's intricate enough to be able to intermix beautiful poetic prophetic, imagery with very solid, literal realities. Mm. Well, even in, in
0: Revelation, where John describes, as Michael often brings up, this, a sea of fire and glass.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, what is that? Is it literal and figure, or figurative? Yes, <laughs> it is. I, I just love that. And, and you think of how, when, well, even when Noah, right? When there was Noah's Ark, all the rain came down, but there, there wasn't, you know, there had to have been water. Com- well, the Bible does describe water coming up Well, how does that happen? Well, the earth has to split. Who says I can't do that again and and make all of this happen, you know?
2: Yeah, Yeah, and in fact, uh, I think in last episode we talked about Ezekiel uh, 40 through 48, which describes in tremendous detail Jerusalem. And um, Jerusalem itself will be radically different and arguably even the temple itself might not be in the exact same location. Um, There's this whole sort of allotment for the Levites and the prince um, that it refers to as David and, and this type of thing. And some some have speculated, again, I, I don't have a strong opinion on this, that the temple itself will actually be all the way up um, closer to Shiloh, hmm. which is in modern-day Samaria. But again, there's gonna be massive topographical changes. All the cities of the earth will fall. Um, and then we get the wonderful job of rebuilding in partnership with the master builder. And hmm. that's actually something to get excited about, right? Like. We get to partner with Yeshua in rebuilding the earth, being part of the Kingdom Garden Architectural Planning Committee. That sounds pretty cool.
0: (laughs) It does. So, I want to bring us back to something we talked about last week, and that was uh, the rapture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I tell people to look at Exodus and look at Revelation and compare the two, there's this, you know, the Goshen principle, as it were, where the, uh, the Israelites are there for some of, the, some of the plagues and then they're somehow protected from the rest. They're there, but the, the, you know, it doesn't touch them. Yep. So is there, is there some correlation to Revelation when we talk about the rapture and when is it and, and that principle?
2: Yeah, very much. Again, understanding that the tribulation, the final, this final time of testing, is very much patterned after the events of the Exodus um, there is no rapture in the Exodus. When the Lord is pouring out His plagues on the land of Egypt, Israel is, for most of it, they're in the land of Egypt in Goshen, but the plagues don't touch them, and so the Lord delivers them. He saves them, and that's you could say that is the rapture, if you will, the 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 ultimate. Deliverance is we are leaving behind the Egypt, you know, this age, this world, etc. But there's not some deliverance seven years before the, the Exodus, right? Like during the judgments when he is judging the wicked, executing his, his judgments on Egypt, he is preserving and protecting his people in Goshen. And that is the pattern that we should expect in the last days, which is to say, as the Lord, he's gonna do a few things. He's gonna do a few things during the tribulation. He's going to chastise, lovingly chastise his people Israel, just like a father does to his children, in order to bring them to a place of faith and salvation. He will break them. He's going to pour out his wrath, his judgment on unbelievers, in order to justify his, his ultimate eternal wrath on them. And for the church, he's going to, for the, The the believing community is going to give us an opportunity to be refined, to be purified, to that our faith would be proven and it would be tested and proven. And there's another point here that I think a lot of our pre-tribulational friends miss. It will give us an opportunity, a redo. Let's just say, during the Holocaust, unarguably. Believers, not all believers, but the vast majority failed to be representatives of Yeshua to the Jewish people. Uh, Like I said, as people were being dragged out of their houses, most German Christians, what they did was they closed the curtains. They turned up the music, they looked the other way. And there's no question that we as the church failed I think the Tribulation will be another opportunity for us to prove and to stand with Israel, to prove our love for the Jewish people. You know, the accusation that a lot of the anti-missionaries in Israel, they'll say, well, you just want the the Tribulation to come so that all the Jews can get killed so your Jesus can return, or this type of thing. You go, who says something like that? That'd be like saying to a husband, "Well, uh, oh, you just, you just want the due date to come because you want your wife to suffer birth pains. You go, what? No, I'm excited about the baby. The birth pains are part of the unfortunate process, but I'm gonna hold her hand, if she'll hold it, and breathe with her and stand by her side throughout the birth pains, and then I'm gonna walk out. Once the birth happens, there's a lot more that follows the birth, right? Like. Mm-hmm many, many years of <laughs> parenting and suffering. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what the church wants to do with Israel. We're gonna stand with her this time. And so there's an opportunity there. So there are multiple reasons for the tribulation. Our pre-trib friends will say, it's Jacob's trouble. That's the only purpose. No, the Lord is gonna execute vengeance against the wicked. He's going to break Israel and chastise her unto redemption. And he's gonna give the church, the corrupt idolatrous church, the opportunity to be refined mm-hmm. and to be purified. And that's, when oh, I say the, the idolatrous church, I mean, I mean me, right? It's gonna give all of us the opportunity to be refined and to be purified. So yes, and we will be protected, we will be preserved, like jams or jellies. <laughs> we, we will be preserved through the winter. We're not gonna be removed from the winter, we'll be preserved through the tribulation.
3: Hmm.
0: Interesting, I like that. And perhaps that's how all, everybody, comes together under one understanding that now you can't deny what's happening here. Yeah. It's, uh, it's this coming king that maybe most in the Christian world did not really expect and the way he's uh, coming back, but yet the Jews are going, now that's a Messiah. <laughs> you know, they may recognize him
2: faster than some of us do. You know, in Matthew 24, he says, after the tribulation, there'll be the cosmic signs. He says, and then they will see the sign of the Son of Man Mm -hmm. I actually have speculated uh, and I believe that when he returns, it's not just gonna be, forgive me, it's not just gonna be this white hippie guy surfing on the clouds. I believe that the pillar of cloud is going to descend once again. And the clouds that he comes back in, I believe it will actually be the pillar of cloud. So you say it'll be much different than what a lot of Christians are expecting. How will the Jews recognize Jesus when he comes back? They go, oh, that's obviously Jesus. That's the guy that all the Christians, all these crazy Gentiles. No, they're not gonna, like, (laughs) I believe there will be something distinctly Jewish, biblical, if you will, about his return Mm -hmm. that will cause all of them to recognize the one they have pierced. And I believe that it will actually be the pillar of cloud. Now, that will confuse Christians, not confuse Christians, but you know, like that's not what Christians are expecting. But of course, Jews are not expecting him to come back as the son of man yeah. in anthropomorphic form. So there's a little bit of tweaking for everyone, so to speak.
0: You know, I see that in the, uh, the story of Joseph too, where Joseph had, you know, he'd been taken in by the Egyptians, if you will, and then so they see him as his, as his brother, and then he has to reveal himself to his original Jewish brother from his family. Yep. So he reveals himself to them, and I'm sure the Egyptians are going, whoa, whoa wait, wait a second. What's going on? We thought you were this guy. You mean you're this guy? Yeah. I mean, that's, and he obviously embodies the, you know, the, the first and second coming of Yeshua, obviously.
2: Yeah, but. yeah. that's a powerful picture actually, in terms of the, the moment of eyes opening and going, oh, I thought you were a Gentile. I thought you were one of those crazy Gentiles. You're one of us. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's exactly. And that's exactly how it describes in Zechariah 12, and then again in Matthew 24, and again for our pre-tribulational friends, when does that moment of awakening happen? When he returns after the tribulation. So yes, there will be a remnant of Jews that will come to faith during the tribulation as there is a remnant now, but the corporate, all Israel will be saved that Paul talks about in Romans 11, that happens when he returns, when he comes back to save them and us. Mm, we
0: have more to talk about. Let's do this next week. You come back and see us too. All right, thank you, Joel Richardson, for joining us here. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next week. Until then, have a safe, have a very prosperous week. Until then, Shavua then and Shabbat Shalom.